This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. All right, open your Bibles this morning to the 24th chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 24, we're talking today about what to do and what not to do with the gospel. Acts chapter 24, and we're going to read uh, that whole chapter and then walk through a good part of it uh, together. What to do and not do with the gospel. Acts chapter 24, if you would find that in your copy of God's Word and follow along with me as I read. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight most excellent Felix reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here uh, before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, 
go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we walk through this chapter, that you would impress upon us the urgency of what to do with the gospel of Jesus and impress upon us the urgency of what not to do with Jesus. Speak to us now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Americans love uh, gift cards. They're an easy gift to buy for people. Um, And so they're good for the the giver, but also the people receiving gift cards generally uh, love them. And so, you know, gift cards are just kind of a kind of a win-win for both uh, givers and receivers. But here's a here's a stat that shocked me. Maybe maybe it will you. In America each year, there is about a billion. That's billion with a B. A billion dollars worth of gift cards that remain unused by people. Um, Now, some of this is because um, uh, people lose them sometimes. Uh, Sometimes they will, they'll use it, but they'll use part of the card. And so there'll be a balance remaining that they don't use. Sometimes the expiration date uh, goes out and then they can't use it. But the vast majority of this billion dollars worth of missed opportunities comes from people who just kind of put their card away in a drawer or somewhere and they forget that it ever existed. Now that didn't happen in the Hayes family, I can, I can tell you. But it's not because of the husband, it's because of the wife. Because the husband in our family hates a stuffed wallet and so I'm constantly taking cards and stuff out of my wallet and putting them in drawers and I can forget them but uh, Melissa insists that the gift cards stay in one special place uh, so we don't lose them and we know where they are and it's all good. But think about a billion dollars worth of missed opportunities. That's a missed opportunity that we can kind of chuckle about, but there are some missed opportunities in life that we can't chuckle about because they're downright tragic. And every time that we sin, there's a missed opportunity involved. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but you know, when, we, when you think about sin, we're aware that ultimately sin brings painful things into our lives. If not immediately, then, then eventually it will catch up with us. But, but what we don't talk about enough is that every time that we sin, we're missing the opportunity for something good. Every time that we try to find satisfaction in sin, we're missing the opportunity for God to take us to a deeper level and to find a deeper satisfaction in Him. But the greatest, most tragic, missed opportunity is when people turn away from the gift of salvation. It's found in Jesus. 
Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you miss that opportunity, that free gift, you miss it all. And we see an example of that here in Acts 24. So last week we were in Acts 20. And we saw that Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders at Miletus. And you remember that he was just passing by there because he was on his way to Jerusalem. And and Paul sensed that severe persecution was awaiting him in Jerusalem. And that was accurate because no sooner had he gotten to Jerusalem and walked into the temple that a a mob formed, uh, they uh, arrested uh, Paul, Uh, they tried to actually kill him in custody, but the authorities were able to smuggle him out of uh, Jerusalem in the middle of the night, and they took Paul to the city of Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean. This is what it, it looked like in the first century. And if you notice Caesarea, which is named after, of course, the, the Roman Caesar, that it looks very Roman, right? The architecture looks Roman, and you can see the theater here and that looks very, very uh, Roman, which is actually still there today, and uh, the Israelis actually have concerts today uh, inside of this theater. But it looks Roman because it was Roman, <laughs> It was a military and political outpost for the Romans, who, of course, were uh, dominating um, the, uh, the, the, the people of Israel at this point in time. And so there in Caesarea uh, was the, a lot, some of the, the, the Roman, Roman, not only the Roman military, a lot of them, but the Roman governor. And that was Governor Felix. And so Paul is brought here to Caesarea. He stays here for two years. And during his time in Caesarea, Paul is going to fulfill a prophecy that Jesus makes in in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says here to us, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. What we're going to see is... Jesus' prophecy that believers were going to stand before the Gentiles, stand before governors and kings to bear witness. This is going to come to pass for Paul in Caesarea. And today, we're going to see him standing trial before the Roman governor, Felix. So let's take a look at what happens. First of all, the prosecution. The prosecution. Let's look at, uh, at verse 1. Luke tells us after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So let's acquaint ourselves with some of the players here. Ananias is the high priest, so he's coming uh, over from Jerusalem with some of his cronies. Ananias was one of the most corrupt high priests that Israel 
ever had, and they have brought with them a very clever attorney, a clever advocate named uh, Tertullus, and they are laying before the governor, uh, Felix, uh, their case against Paul. And so Tertullus begins to speak by sort of uh, buttering up the governor, beginning in verse 2. When he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way, and in everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, we beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Well, suddenly... All of Tertullus's nauseating flatteries and pleasantries come to an abrupt end when he begins to talk about Paul in verse 5. He says there, For we have found this man, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And of course, it was all a lie riots had started, but it wasn't because Paul started them. Um, It was because of this faithfulness to Christ and because of satanic opposition uh, to him. That's how the riots had taken place. Paul and the other followers of Jesus certainly had not uh, started them. But you can see here the angle that Tertullus wants to take with Felix because the last thing that Roman governors wanted was riots. Whoever started them, they wanted quiet because the Caesar was going to uh, judge them on their ability to keep things quiet. So it's not no surprise that Tertullus takes this tact against Paul. This, is, this man starts riots. You need to get rid of him. And notice here in verse 5 that uh, Tertullus refers to the followers of Jesus as the sect of the Nazarenes. Because Jesus was from Nazareth. Now we've, we've heard that word for believers come up again in the last few years when ISIS went into uh, Christian areas. Um, and uh, they, would, they would mark the, here it's a, it's a church uh, building. And so they spray paint it uh, in, in red uh, with uh, the uh, with the Arabic uh, letter N, this is an N uh, here, and uh, it stands for Nazarene. These are the people that they're saying we want to eliminate. The people here are marked for death. You see another photo here of uh, of, a, of a dwelling place of believers, again marked with an N for uh, Nazarenes. These people are to be marked for death. The old hymn, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And because Paul had stood amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, he could stand before governors and kings and hostile courts and bear witness, which is exactly what he's about to do. We saw, see the prosecution. Let's now look at the, the defense, Paul's uh, defense, beginning in verse 10. 
And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Now you notice here, that Paul doesn't have a Tertullus to speak for him. (laughs) He doesn't have a clever lawyer by his side. But you know what? Paul Paul has, and we have, a greater advocate, don't we? 1 John 2.1 says that as, as believers, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so with Jesus by his side and bearing witness through him by the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul is able to, uh, to speak here. Look at verse 14. He says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And so uh, Paul sees himself as really nothing more than a faithful Jew who believes the promises of the Old Testament, the promises of a coming Messiah fulfilled in Jesus. And so, you know, neither Jesus, neither Paul or Jesus really sees themselves as starting a new religion called Christianity. They see themselves as, as, as faithful Jews believing the promises of the Old Testament, right? Which makes what we saw this week and all the more harrowing when you think about people raising their arms in a Nazi salute that symbolizes the the torture and the murder of millions of Jewish people. Paul sees himself as a faithful Jew, who has lived, who see, who's living out uh, the, the, the law and the prophets and who believes what the Old Testament said about the Messiah, that Jesus is that way. As Jesus himself says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Paul here refers to the Jesus movement as the, the way. But he didn't see that really as a, as a departure from Judaism saw that as the fulfillment, the completion of the promises of the Old Testament. Verses 15 and and following. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Listen, if we believe that Jesus is coming again, and that we're going to be raised to stand before him, and that that could happen any day, that's a reason to, to, to seek to live a pure and a holy life. 1 John 3, 2 and 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Paul says, because I believe that the the pure and holy one is coming and that I'm going to be raised bodily to stand before him, 
I'm going to bear witness before you with a clear conscience. Verse 17 and following, Paul continues, Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul never misses an opportunity to bring up the resurrection, okay? Um, because it's the, it's the hinge on which Christianity turns. It, it stands or falls on the resurrection of Christ. Paul proclaims it whenever he can. It's really at the heart of the gospel, which we see unpacked in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then later in that chapter, he says in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, there's another old hymn that says, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. But that's not the primary defense that Paul makes about the resurrection. <laughs> the primary thing that Paul says about the resurrection is that it is based on eyewitness testimony. And so he takes pains here in 1 Corinthians 15 to, to go through all of these eyewitnesses that had, that had seen the resurrected Christ and interacted with the resurrected Christ and appeared to all of these hundreds of people. And then Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me. And Paul went from a persecutor of the church to a planter of churches. How do you account for that? Apart from him seeing Jesus alive. Paul's an intellectual, one of the most brilliant minds who ever walked the face of the earth. He's not a mystic. He's highly rational, highly logical, how do you explain how Paul goes from a persecutor of church to a planter of churches who is willing to give his life for the gospel along with all of these other people who were giving their lives, sacrificing their lives? You think they would do that for what they knew to be a lie? And so to believe in the resurrection, yes, it's faith, but it's not blind faith. It's not a leap in the dark. It's based on credible testimony. That's what Paul, Paul bases it on. 
There's a New Testament scholar named Michael Lacona, a friend of mine, who in 2010 wrote a, a massive book called The Resurrection of Jesus. And Mike says there, a good critical scholar must account for the facts with integrity even when the facts are in tension with our desired outcome. And then he uses this example from American history. Long before John Adams became the second U.S. president, in 1770, he was a respected lawyer in New England where the Boston Massacre had just occurred. No lawyers would defend the British soldiers involved for fear of the American public, which had now grown even stronger in its anti-British sentiments. But Adams believed that everyone was entitled to a fair trial. He took the case. The public turned against him, and he lost more than half his clients. In a courtroom that was described as crowded and electrical, Adams argued that the soldiers were innocent. He then added, facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of the facts and evidence. And then Dr. Lacona concludes, no matter how much one may loathe the idea that Jesus rose from the dead and fantasize about other outcomes, the historical bedrock remains the same. Jesus' resurrection is the best historical explanation of the relevant historical evidence. And so we don't base our faith just on kind of the subjective feelings of our hearts. No. Our faith is based on very credible testimony. Paul preaches the resurrection every chance that he gets. Well, at this point, the trial comes to an end for the moment. And they dismiss Paul. Um, and so he remains in Caesarea. He's there for a couple of years. And sometimes Felix will call him to talk. Now, we know Felix's motivation. He was hoping to bribe Paul <laughs> to let him go. Little, little did he know <laughs> who he was dealing with. And Luke tells us about one particular day when Felix was with his, his wife, Drusilla, and they called Paul in uh, to speak before them. Of course, Felix was after money, and he was going to get more than he bargained for, <laughs> for Paul. <laughs> he was going to get something that was beyond value, because what's Paul going to do? It tells us here. What to do with the gospel. Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So what, what to do with the gospel? <laughs> Share it <laughs> and believe it. But we also see here tragically what not to do with the gospel in verse 25. Because what happens? As he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And the word there is even stronger than alarmed. <laughs> Terrified. And said, go away for the present. 
When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. I mean, you get the, you get the feeling here that the moment Paul walked out of the room, Felix is like, oh, got rid of him. You know, I want to hear him talk about, you know, righteousness and the coming judgment. If you knew about Felix's lifestyle, believe me, you can see why Felix would be freaked out uh, by hearing that. But look, Paul had laid before Felix the fact that even though Felix was unrighteous, that a righteousness not our own <laughs> had been provided through Jesus. He had spoken about faith in Christ Jesus. He had spoken about the fact that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And what does Felix do? Felix did tragically what so many people in our own culture do. They say to Jesus, I'll get back to you. One day, one day I'll deal with that. That's not a wise thing to do when it comes to Jesus. For a couple of reasons. First, none of us has even promised tomorrow. Proverbs 27.1 says, don't boast about tomorrow. You don't even know what a day is gonna bring forth. I might not be a tomorrow. That's why 2 Corinthians 6 and verse two says in a favorable time I listened to you and in the day of salvation I have helped you behold now is the favorable time behold now is the day of salvation second putting Jesus off is not a wise thing because you don't even know so even if you do get a chance to hear it again you don't know what the condition of your heart's going to be because here's the deal. The more that we have an opportunity and the more that we suppress truth, the harder our hearts become. So we don't even know that we would even be remotely receptive to the gospel on another occasion. That's why Hebrews 3 and verses seven and eight says, therefore as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You've got today. It's God's grace. God's grace, it's a gift that you're here. If you don't know Jesus, God's put you here within the hearing of the good news of the gospel and it's held out for you. Come, don't miss this opportunity. That's tragic. If you're here today as a believer and God's been speaking to you about a next step that you need to take in obedience to the Lord in, the, in, in your Christian life, friend, don't delay. God's speaking to you now. He wants you to obey him joyfully and promptly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, our trial is over. For, for those of us who know Christ, we're no longer in the courtroom because the verdict has already been rendered. Because Jesus paid it all on the cross. That he died for our sins and that he rose from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures.
And that as Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, accomplished, it's done. Lord, for that reason, the trial for us can be over and the verdict can be rendered. Not guilty, but righteous because of Jesus, the righteous one. As we just continue to pray, if you're here today and you're not certain that you know him, come to him today. Say right now within your heart, Lord, I believe. I repent. I turn from trying to do life my own way apart from you, and I turn to Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead. And right now, I ask you to come into my life and take control. I want to follow you as my Savior and Lord. Say that to him in your heart. You have today, you have this opportunity. Take it. If you're here today as a believer, God's speaking to you about an area of your life, maybe a sin that needs to be dealt with, maybe, maybe, some, maybe something that he's calling you to as a step of obedience to him. Obey him today. Trust him. Trust and obey him today. So, Father, speak to our hearts now. Uh, help us to do business with you in this holy time. As you speak to our hearts, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation. If you're here today, God's speaking to you about a relationship with Jesus. Don't leave here uh, without letting us know. I'm going to be right here at the front. Share with me. What, what God's, what's God doing in your heart? And we want to rejoice with you. Step out for him today. Take that step to trust and obey the Lord. If you're here today and God's speaking to you um, as a believer about an area of your Christian life, maybe God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family, step out and say, I want to be a part of the First Baptist family, or maybe I want to follow through in believer's baptism. Take that step today. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with them. 
We get to know God through His Word, through prayer, and through His people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.